Let us pray together before we begin. Father, I thank you for your good pleasure, Lord, and that you have brought us here this afternoon so that we may behold Christ, so that we may sing these songs, Christ is all, Christ is all, and truly Christ is all we need. All the blessings that are found in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we are blessed. We praise you and thank you for that, and now as we come to your word, I do ask for your spirit to work mightily in our hearts. I do ask that your spirit would guide me and give me clarity and ability to communicate this clearly. Even though, Lord, this might sound a bit confusing it's to some, Lord, we ask that you would make it clear to our hearts that all the blessings are found in one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. And our blessings depend on how we are connected to him. If we're in Christ, we're blessed. If not, Lord, we are cursed. And so I ask, Lord, that you would make it clear to us today so that each heart here would look to Christ every single day. Not only something that has happened many years ago when we prayed a sinner's prayer or walked the aisle or did some other thing, Lord, but that even today we would look to Christ and find our hope and our rest in Him. Bless this time in your word for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin today by contemplating the following question. What sets Christianity from every other religion? What sets biblical Christianity from every other religion? Now, when I ask this question, I am assuming a few things. Number one is that there is something that sets biblical Christianity from all other religions. Number two, I'm assuming that biblical Christianity is true and every other religion is false, and we'll just take that as a given. Now, I say what sets biblical Christianity from all other religions because there are many people who claim to be Christians, but they have abandoned the Bible. They have discarded the Bible long ago, and maybe some who haven't discarded the Bible, they have added so many things to the Bible that the Bible is lost. So I'm asking again, what sets Christianity or biblical Christianity from every other religion? Now, somebody might say, well, Christianity is not a religion but a relationship. Now, although that is true, and Christianity is about a relationship with God, it's much more than that. Because Christianity is not just a relationship with Jesus, but it is governed by principles and doctrines that are outlined in the Word. In fact, James calls Christian practice a religion. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James writes this pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here's the distinction that sets Christianity apart from every other religion, and it is this. Christianity is not a works-based religion, but a faith-based religion. Christianity, or biblical Christianity, is not works-based religion, but faith-based religion. Now you might say, well, don't other religions require faith, and don't they ask you to believe? And yes, they do. But let me ask you, if you are a Muslim, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, according to Quran, it all boils down to what you do in this life and your actions. Quran, in Surah 23, verses 102 through 104, says this, Those whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed. 
But those whose balances shall be light, they should lose their soul, abiding in hell forever. Heard that before? If at the end of your life your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're in. And you're talking to people and like, why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a good person, because I do this, that, or the other. That's why if you're a Muslim, you have to constantly repeat, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. You have to pray five times a day. You have to give alms. You have to travel to Mecca. You have to fast during Ramadan. And then if you do and you die, when you stand before Allah, perhaps he will be gracious to you. And looking at your life, maybe he looks at you and shows mercy to you, and your next life will be better than this one. Now, in the last few months, we spent a lot of time in our class, Bible versus Babel, talking about Roman Catholic Church. You see, they profess to believe in Christ. But that belief in Christ is not sufficient for salvation. You see, God and man, according to Catholic theology, must cooperate in securing salvation. And they do so, as we've seen, by participating in sacraments, mass, you need the help of Mary, you need rosary, you need purgatorial sufferings, and then maybe at the end of it all, you will make it to heaven. Here's what Christianity says. Here's what biblical Christianity says. You cannot pray enough. You cannot give enough. You cannot fast enough. You cannot travel enough. You cannot work enough. You cannot be good enough to be saved. In fact, there is nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is recognize that you can't do anything and look to the one who did everything for you. You see, Christianity is not a religion of human achievements, but it is a religion of divine accomplishment. Christianity is about you believing and trusting in someone else who did all the work. Now, this is not a new message that Jesus and the apostles came up with, but this has always been this way. From the very dawn of time, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, from that very beginning, God has promised that a Savior would come. And why would Savior need to come? Because you cannot save yourself. Because there is nothing else that you can do to save yourself. You need somebody else to come and save you. And from Genesis to Revelation, that is the message of the Bible. You can't do nothing, but I'm going to send someone who's going to do everything for you. And all you have to do is believe in that one. Now, This is the message that Paul has been defending in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take your copy and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Paul has been laboring hard in this chapter, trying to defend the message of the gospel. Now, our verses for today are verses 15 through 18, but here's what Paul already said in this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, Paul demonstrated that Galatians were saved and they were sanctified by hearing the message, believing the message, and not by being circumcised or observing the law of Moses. In verses 6 and 7, Paul defends the same proposition by examining the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In verses 8 through 10, Paul showed how the scripture preached the same message to Abraham in 2100 BC, saying, you believe, and through you I will bless all the nations. If you were here last time, in verses 11 through 14, Paul demonstrated how all who fall short of the law of Moses are under a curse. And all who trust in Christ are blessed. 
Mosaic law does not bring salvation, but it does bring condemnation. That's what it does. Now, by this time, when Paul was writing this book, he's been around the block a number of times, and he knows the objections that his readers will have. Here's the objection with which he's dealing in verses 15 through 18. These Judaizers would come in and say, well, sure, yes, Abraham was before Mosaic law, and yes, Abraham was justified by faith, but guess what? Once God gave the law, now we who have the law must obey the law because it came from God. True, Abraham was saved in that way, but he didn't have the law, so he didn't have to obey. But you know what? Now that we have the law, the law superseded the gospel that was preached to Abraham. And in our verses, Paul destroys this theory. This is how Paul does it. This is his point. The law does not invalidate the promise of the gospel. That is the basic proposition from these verses. This is the point that Paul is trying to take home. If you're going to forget everything else I'm going to say, this is the main thing. This is the main point. The law, which came much later than the promise which was given to Abraham, does not invalidate the promise of the gospel. Now we'll read the text, verses 15 through 18, and we'll examine it under four headings. First, we'll talk about the theory of a covenant. What is a covenant? What is the idea behind a covenant? Second, we'll talk about the terms of the covenant in verse 16. Then we'll consider the timing of the covenant in verse 17. And then we'll conclude with the type of the covenant in verse 18. So the theory of a covenant, the terms of the covenant, the timing of the covenant, and the type of the covenant. Now join me as I read beginning in verse 15 and we'll read through verse 18. Paul writes this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's begin with first with the theory of a covenant. Now, as you can see in verse 15, Paul begins this section here with an illustration. Paul will argue from lesser to the greater. Verse 15 begins with brethren, brothers, I am speaking in terms of human relations. And to some it might sound a bit confusing. What are you, what are you talking about? If you have ESV translation, ESV says, to give you a human example. That's basically what he's saying. He says, let me illustrate this for you. And what is his illustration? His illustration is making of a covenant. Now, covenant is an old word, which simply means a contract. No doubt, most of you have, in one way or another, entered one contract or another. For example, you go to school, and you show up the first day of class, and the teacher gives you a syllabus, and they say, you must do this work in this way to get this grade. That's the contract, right? You get hired, and your boss says, okay, this is your job. This is what you have to do. This is how long you're going to work. This is how much I'm going to pay you. And... You agree to that or you disagree. If you disagree, you don't work for the guy, right? So you enter into a contract with a person. 
Now, everybody knows that. Everybody understands that this is not a 21st century thing. It's been around a long, long time. And Scripture speaks of many such contracts between God and men, and they're known in the Bible as covenants. Now, what is the theory behind a covenant or a contract? Here's what Paul says in verse 15. He says, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. He's making a very simple point. He said, before you're going to sign on the dotted line, you better read the fine print. That's what he's saying. He says, if you're going to sign the contract, make sure that you understand the terms of the contract, the terms of the contract before you sign the dotted line. You see, when you sign the contract and you shake hands, you cannot go back and simply throw the contract away or go back and change some terms. I mean, imagine I'm going to a dealer, I'm gonna buy a new car. I walk into the lot and I pick the car that I like, and then I go to the sales guy and say, hey, I want to buy this car. He tells me the price. He tells me the interest rate. He tells me everything about the car. We sit down. We do paperwork. He explains everything to me, and he says, this is how many more you're going to pay, you know, 36 months. This is going to be your monthly payment. This is going to be your interest, right? And we go through all the details, and he explains all the terms. We sit down. I sign the paperwork, and I drive away. Two months later, I don't like the car. So I come back to the dealer, and I say, listen, I don't like the car. Take it back. I want my down payment back. What do you think he's going to say? Good luck, buddy. You signed on the dotted line, didn't you? Right? I say, okay, fine. I'll keep the car. But you know what? On second thought, the interest rate is super high. I want you to change that. No, buddy. You signed the contract, didn't you? You can go refinance. You can go get another deal. But you can't just go back and change the terms of the deal that you signed already. You can't do that. It doesn't work like that. Now, we understand that that's how human contracts work. And so Paul is arguing here from a human perspective, and he's talking about if human covenants work in this way, if human contracts work in this way, how do you think God's contracts work? You see, the theory or the whole concept of a contract means that you negotiate the contract before you sign it. And once you sign the contract, it is binding, and it is binding for both parties. For the one, the, like in, in case of God and man, for both parties. Now that is a human illustration, and everybody can relate to that. Now Paul is taking this, I'm giving you this human illustration. Now let's take this human illustration and apply it to the way God relates to man. Because in a sense, God operates with man on the same principles. There are contracts, there are covenants that God made with men throughout the Bible. Basically, he's saying, do you think that human contracts are more binding than divine ones? That's basically what he's asking. Because they are arguing that the contract which came, as Paul says, 430 years later, nullifies the contract that was made with Abraham. And Paul is saying, listen, do you think that your human agreements about your job or your cars are more binding than the contract between God and man? No, that's foolish. That's the theory. The theory is you negotiate the terms, and then those terms are binding. Now, let's apply this theory to practice. In verse 16, he gives us the term of the terms of the covenant. And here, when we're talking about covenant, we're talking about Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 16. These are the terms. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Now first, notice the nature of this covenant. He says, this is a covenant of promise. 
Now, when we're talking about covenants between God and man, we are talking about binding legal agreements that stipulate the conditions of that relationship. Now, this is different than covenant theology, which is a theological framework that seeks to put all the covenants of which we read in the Bible into three covenants. There's three covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Now, we're here, we're not against systems because, I mean, we teach systematic theology every Saturday, right? We're not against systems here. We're not against frameworks. But very often, we build frameworks and systems, and then we try to take the Bible and shove it into those systems. And sometimes, shoving the Bible into those systems is like taking a square peg and trying to fit it into a round hole. As far as we see it here, three theological covenant, covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, you do not find backing for those in the Bible. But what you do find is covenants such as these. There are five major ones in the Bible. There is covenant with Noah, which is known as Noahic covenant. There is Abrahamic covenant. Then there is Mosaic covenant. Then there is Davidic covenant. And then finally, there is the new covenant. Now, Theological covenants, again, this is just a system by which they organize and explain the relationship between these covenants. What we think is better to do is to look at each one of them and to examine how they relate to another rather than imposing some system on them into which we're going to try to shove these covenants in. So when we're talking about these five covenants, each of these five major covenants in the Bible, they were made with specific individuals or groups of individuals. Now, for our purposes here, and what Paul does in our passage here, I want to draw a distinction that Paul draws specifically between two covenants. He's comparing Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant. And here's the distinction. Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, but Mosaic covenant was conditional. This is the distinction that Paul draws in this text. Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, but Mosaic covenant was conditional. Now let's briefly examine each. Let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. I want to read you two texts, and you can go there if you'd like. Genesis chapter 12, we'll begin there. And as you listen, I want you to pay attention to this phrase, I will, I will, I will. Notice how many times this phrase is repeated. We'll read Genesis 12, first three verses, and then Genesis 17, beginning in verse 7. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 7, God says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now notice what's absent in these verses. Conditions. Any conditions. God does not say, Abraham, if you do this, that, or the other, then I will do this. No, God simply comes to Abraham and says this. This is a unilateral covenant. 
I make this covenant. I am going to do this, and I'm just informing you, and all you have to do, you just have to believe. I will, I will, I will. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, this covenant with Abraham was ratified, and there was a ceremony. Now, we know that that's when the covenant was ratified, because if you're in Genesis, if you look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, it says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. Now, this was the ratification ceremony. Verse 9 says this, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So this is the ceremony. This is how you would cut a covenant. This is how you would make a covenant. They would bring these animals and they would cut them in half. They would put them opposite of one another. And then the parties to the covenant, they would walk across those or between those two animals. In essence saying, if I fail to live up to my end of the bargain, let the same thing happen to me. That is basically what they're saying. If I do not live up to the terms of this covenant, may the same fate fall upon me. This is not the only time in the Bible this happens. You remember the covenant was ratified with the nation of Israel later on. In the book of Jeremiah, God rebukes the people. And listen to this rebuke. Jeremiah 34, 18. I will give the men who transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant, which they made with me, when they cut, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts. Same ceremony. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. You remember, you made a covenant with me. You made a deal. You passed between those animals. You did not live up to your terms of the covenant. And therefore, I'm going to do the same thing to you. You're going to be lying dead like that, and the birds will eat your flesh. That's exactly what he's saying. And so God says, Abraham, we're going to make this covenant. And Abraham prepares everything. He cuts these animals, and he's waiting for the Lord to show up so they can walk through. But guess what happens? If you're in Genesis 15, look at verse 12. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17 says this, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Guess what? When the covenant with Abram was made, Abram was sound asleep. That's what happened. The only person who passed through was God himself in this flaming torch. In other words, God is saying, I am the one who is making this covenant. And this covenant is unilateral. Abraham, you're not going to walk through because there are no conditions for you. I am the one who's making this covenant. And therefore, faithfulness to this covenant depends on faithfulness, not of Abraham, but of faithfulness of the Lord you see, God says, if one will fail in this covenant, if I will break the terms of this covenant, then I will sin. Now, what are the odds of God doing that? I mean, very low. It's a very low round number. Zero, right? That's what he's saying. 
When the covenant was ratified, it was made by God alone. Therefore, Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant. What about Mosaic covenant? If you want to turn there, turn to Exodus chapter 19. And as you listen to this, notice the conditions that are placed upon the people. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. Remember, this is after Moses brings people out of Egypt. A year later, he goes up on the mountain. He receives the law from the Lord, and he makes this covenant with people. Exodus 19, verse 3 says this, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice this phrase, if you indeed obey. But what if you don't obey? What if you disobey? Well, guess what? If you were here last time, we talked about all the curses. That's what's going to happen to you. All the curses that I promise, they will come upon you if you are not faithful to your end of the bargain. You see, Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant of promise contingent only upon the faithfulness of God. All Abraham was required to do was believe the promise that God had made. So this is the distinction between these two covenants. One was unconditional. The second one was conditional. Now, secondly, if you look at verse 16, go back to Galatians, consider the parties to this covenant. Who was Abrahamic covenant with? Verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Now, this is an amazing verse here. If you ever needed a verse for inspiration of Scripture, you need to go no further than this verse right here. Because you see, Paul's theological point that he's making here does, depends on whether the word seed is singular or plural. You see, people say, well, you know what? God gave inspired ideas to people, and then they wrote it down. So yeah, sure, if there are some minor mistakes in the Bible, it's still inspired. No, 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 no. Inspiration extends to the words themselves. And not even just words, but we're talking about tenses, we're talking about moods, and we're talking about the numbers, whether it's singular or plural. Because here, the whole point that Paul makes, it depends on whether the word seed is singular or it is plural. So what is the point that Paul is making? Paul is saying that Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and his seed. And notice the stress that he makes. He says that this covenant was not made with all of the descendants of Abraham, but with one descendant of Abraham. He is talking about a singular seed. Now the word seed in Greek, sperma, and the word seed in Hebrew, Zerah, those words, they are collective nouns, which means that they can refer either to a single seed or they can refer to a number of seeds, but you would still use the same word seed. For example, if you say, you know, I'm holding in my I have a handful of poppy seed. Am I holding one or because I'm saying handful, I have a lot of them, right? So you can use this as a collective noun. 
Now, sometimes in the Bible, this word seed is used as singular. Sometimes it is used as plural. And the context determines the meaning. For example, Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 says this. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she bore him a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring, and the word literally there, another seed, in place of Abel. So she's using that word to refer to one son, Seth specifically. Genesis 21, 13. And of the son of the maid, Ishmael, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant, or literally it says because he is your seed. So Ishmael is used here in the singular. Now, obviously, sometimes it is used in the plural because in Genesis 15, 5, he took him outside and God says to him, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Obviously, we're talking about plural as the stars of heaven in number. So he's referring to the children of Abraham. Now, what does Paul refer to here when he says that God was speaking of singular seed rather than plural seed? Now, go back to the text which we read at the beginning of a service, Genesis 22. You remember Genesis 22, God is testing Abraham? And after Abraham passed the test, in verse 18, God makes this promise to him. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul interprets this seed as singular rather than plural. Because if you look at grammar, it can go either way. You can go singular or you can go plural. But Paul, because he's inspired by the same Spirit who spoke in Genesis chapter 22, he says this is what God was saying back then. He was not talking about all of the descendants of Abraham. He was talking about a specific descendant of Abraham. And that seed was singular. Now, who is the seed? Now, Paul explicitly tells us that is Christ. In other words, he's saying all of the blessings of Abrahamic covenant, they come from one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Because this covenant was made with Abraham and with Christ. He is the promised seed. Now, this is the concept that stretches back from Genesis 3 all the way to the New Testament. You remember immediately after they sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, God is speaking to Eve, God is speaking to a serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you. Notice, he, singular, seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Did the devil inflict pain on Christ? Yes, he did on the cross. But his head got crushed by that. And Genesis 3.15, God already spoke of the seed who would come. This is the first promise of Messiah in the Bible. The same promise is made to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Later on, the promise is repeated to David when God makes another covenant. And he says in 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, literally a seed, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So obviously he's not talking about Solomon here, right? He's talking about some other seed. Jesus is from the line of David. He's the seed of David. He says, your throne shall be established forever. Whose throne? David's throne? Jesus' throne. Because Jesus is coming as the seed of David. The New Testament opens. In the very first 
chapter of New Testament begins this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And notice all these terms. Son, descendant, seed. These are all used interchangeably. And they all refer to the same person. He can say, you can read it this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. And he goes on to prove that Jesus descended from David and Jesus descended from Abraham. And therefore, the covenants that were made with David and with Abraham, they are fulfilled in this one person, Jesus Christ. Here's the point. All of the promises that were given to Abraham, they are fulfilled and they're connected to one person, Jesus Christ. Or we can say it this way, Abrahamic covenant was made with two people, with Abraham and with Christ. Because the promises were made to Abraham concerning his seed, that is Christ. All of the blessings that are associated with Abrahamic covenant, they are given to Jesus Christ. I mean, is that not what New Testament says? 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are, yes. All the promises of God, they're fulfilled in one person, that is Christ. You see, the blessings that you and I have or experience, they are directly linked to our relationship with Christ. Now, in light of this, listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How are you blessed? You are blessed because you are connected to Christ. You are blessed because all of the blessings are found in Christ. And the scripture says that if you are in Christ, then you are blessed. Now, what do you have to do to be in Christ? Simply believe the message. What did Abraham have to do to receive those blessings? He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's recap this. Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional promise to Abraham that his seed will bring blessing to the whole world. To receive that blessing, all Abraham had to do is believe. He didn't have to work. He didn't have to jump through any hoops. He simply believed God Now, when we're talking about Abrahamic blessings in this context of Galatians chapter 3, it is nothing short of justification by faith, is it not? He says, in you all the nations will be blessed, and you Gentiles will be justified by faith. So the blessings of salvation, the blessings of justification that were promised to Abraham, that would go to all the nations, are by them exercising their faith and believing in the seed of Abraham, that is Christ. Now, if we connect this to verse 15, previous verse, what would it be if God would renege on his promises? And says, by the way, you know what? I I did make that promise to Abraham. But you know what? Now things are different. He would be unfaithful to his covenant. And therefore, he would sin. And there would say, may the same fate fall upon me as it did on those animals. Is that possible? That's impossible. And that's the whole point. He says, To Abraham, the promise was given by God alone. And God is faithful to his word all the time. He does not change the terms of his covenant. He does not throw the covenant away. No, it was by faith given to Abraham. Now let's consider the timing of this covenant. And when we're talking about timing, let's talk about the timing of Abrahamic covenant versus the timing of the Mosaic covenant. Verse 17 says this. What I'm saying is this. 
The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And here's the question. When was Abrahamic covenant ratified in relation to the Mosaic covenant? Now, in our verse, it says here, 430 years later. Here's the question. How did Paul come up with that number? 430 years later, because... Genesis 15, between Genesis 15 and Exodus 19, is 645 years. 645 years. So Abraham was 645 years, or the covenant was ratified, 645 years before the covenant was made with Israel. Now the same number, or this exact number, 430 years, appears in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. It says, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And most likely what Paul is referring to here is to the last reiteration of Abrahamic covenant that was made in the book of Genesis before the sons of Israel went into Egypt. The covenant was made in Genesis 15, or was ratified in Genesis 15, the covenant was reiterated to Isaac in Genesis 24. Listen to this, or Genesis 26, 24. The Lord appeared to him, that is to Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Notice the same idea. I will bless you because of the covenant that I made with Abraham. The last reaffirmation of Abrahamic covenant was made to Jacob in Genesis 46, right before his going into Egypt. Genesis 46 says this, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. Notice how... It sounds like Abrahamic covenant. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So after this, Jacob goes to Egypt. They spend 430 years there, and then they walk out. Moses brings them out, and they go to the Mount Sinai, and that's where God makes Mosaic covenant with them. What's the point? God made covenant with Abraham in 2090 BC. Jacob, with his family, moves to Egypt, and that's 1875 BC. 430 years later, they come out of Egypt, and that's 1445 BC. Well, 1445 is much later than 2090, is it not? It is. So which covenant was made first? Abrahamic covenant. And that is the point that Paul is making here. He's saying that way back in the day, if you want to count the years, 645 years prior to this, God made an unconditional, eternal covenant of promise with Abraham. The terms of those covenants were contingent simply on God's faithfulness alone. Abraham had to do nothing. All Abraham had to do was believe the promises that God made to him. Now, if Mosaic Covenant superseded or replaced Abrahamic Covenant, then what happened to those promises that God made? Did God change the terms of the contract? Did God set that aside? Did God say we're going to do things differently now? Is that what happened? You see, if now, 
as these Judaizers and these false teachers were arguing. Now that we have the law, we have to obey the law because the law came from God. And Paul's saying, listen, Abraham got saved, and everyone at that time got saved simply for believing the gospel because God promised that to them. God says, you believe in me and I will save you. And that's what they did. And now, if your salvation is contingent upon your obedience, what happened to those promises that God made to Abraham? Did he throw away the covenant? That's impossible. That's impossible. That's not how covenants work. You don't even do that with human contracts. And you think God just threw away the covenant and the promise that he unilaterally made to Abraham? No. Abrahamic covenant came before Mosaic covenant. And no matter what comes after Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham cannot be set aside because it was eternal, unilateral, unconditional covenant. But maybe, just maybe, we can take these two covenants and fuse them somehow. Is it possible? Well, let's look at that in verse 18. And he talks about the type of the covenant. What kind of covenant was it? And this is basically reiteration of verse 16. Verse 18 says this, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. What is he saying here? He's saying here that the nature of the two covenants are diametrically opposed to one another. You cannot take Abrahamic covenant and somehow fuse it with Mosaic covenant and somehow make them work together. No, he says they're opposite, just like water and oil cannot be mixed. You cannot mix these two covenants. Listen, if you have to work for that which has been promised to you by grace, it is no longer grace. Is it not? If I promise to give you a gift and then tell you that you have to work for it, how's it going to work? It's no longer a gift. And that's the whole point. Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise where you simply had to believe. Mosaic covenant, you have to do and then you will live. That is the distinction. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this. And imagine one of the wealthiest people here in Folsom comes to us one day and says, Listen, guys, I know it's very hard to find a church building here in Folsom. They're rarely available or they're not available. And when they are, they're extremely expensive. And so I want to bless Folsom Bible Church, and we're building a brand new building just down the street from here, and I want to give that building to you. We already did all the paperwork. Your, your name is on the paperwork, and we'll be done by the end of the year, and so January 1st, you guys can move in. It's all yours. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. We're all so excited because we're getting a new building January 1st, 2024, right? Two months later, he comes back to us. He says, you know, on the second thought, you know, there is something that you have to do. Uh, all I want you to do is I want every single member of Folsom Bible Church to volunteer for my company for 70 hours a week for an indefinite period of time. And if you won't do that, I already talked to your landlord right now, and they will kick you out of your building where you are right now. How do you like that deal? You see, that's exactly what would happen if Mosaic Covenant would replace Abrahamic Covenant. Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise. It was a gracious covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. Guys, you guys are getting your building. You're getting heaven. You're getting glory just because you believe in me. Mosaic covenant, no, you're going to work 70 hours a week. And if you fail, I'm going to curse you. That's Mosaic covenant. And that's what he's saying here. He says you cannot take those covenants and fuse them together because they're opposite. They're diametrically opposed to one another. Then the question, why 
Mosaic Covenant. I mean, if it was all by, prom- by faith in the promise of God, why in the world would you need a Mosaic Covenant? And to find the answer to that question, you come next Sunday. Because that's when we're going to go to verse 19, where he's going to answer the question, why the law then? So what we did here is we examined the theory behind the covenant. And the theory is this. Once you sign the contract, you better review the terms because you cannot go back and throw away the contract and you cannot change the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant of Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of grace, unconditional promise that God would save people because they simply believe in Abraham's seed that is Christ. And that covenant was made before any other covenant was made, with exception of the way a covenant, which is a covenant with the whole world. That covenant was made 2100 B.C., where God says, believe in me and I will save you. And that covenant is a covenant of grace. It is not a covenant of you doing anything. It's not contingent upon your obedience in any way. So what's the point? The point is that all the blessings that you could experience and all the blessings that God promises to the world They are tied to one person, and that is Christ. God gave all the blessings of the world, not to Mary, but to Christ, right? If you've been in class last week, you know that. He gave everything to Christ. And if you're going to be blessed, it is because you're going to be connected to Christ. You see, the mistake that the Galatians made is that they started seeking for blessing in all the other places but Christ. They started to think that in order for me to be blessed, in order for me to experience salvation and sanctification, I need to get circumcised or I need to keep the law. When in fact, you already have all those promises in Christ. Everything that God wants to give you, it is found in one person, Jesus Christ. You see, to know if you are accepted by God, all you need to do is you need to answer one question. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? You see, if you are in Christ, then God will accept you so long as he accepts his son. And guess what? He's never going to reject his son. The father always accepts his son because once he turned his face away from him, when he poured his wrath on him. And that is the preview verses 13 through 15, right? The father poured his divine wrath on the son and he became cursed for us so that if we are now in Christ then God looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore you have all the blessings and you no longer need to work for your salvation or work to be accepted by God. How can you know that you are in Christ? Well, have you trusted the good message of the gospel in verses 13 through 15? Have you trusted Christ that he is the only one who can give you what you cannot work for? All the other religions tell you that you must work, you must work hard, and then maybe God will be merciful to you because of what you do. Well, guess what? You don't have to work for it because you cannot offer anything. God accepts the work of only one person, perfect person, Jesus Christ. And if you say, I trust Christ, amen, then God accepts you because he accepts his son. If you've accepted Christ, You have all the blessings that God has promised to Abraham and all throughout Scripture. Because everything belongs to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to you. And everything that Christ has belongs to you. If you didn't accept Christ, I mean, what are you waiting for? Don't try to find another way 
or find other ways to please God because He already told you there is no other way. But if you believe this, and you are in Christ, and you're a Christian, what should this do for your assurance of salvation? I mean, as Pastor Tony says, you must be nine foot tall and bulletproof. Listen, if God made a promise to to Abraham, and there was a promise concerning his son, it was a unilateral promise, it was a promise that cannot be revoked, that cannot be altered, cannot be changed in any way, and the promise is that I will bring that blessing. Now, if you're in Christ, that blessing is guaranteed to you. 100%. It cannot change. God will never change his mind about you because you're in Christ and God always accepts his son. Listen, you don't have to doubt. You don't have to wonder. The question you ask is, do I trust Christ right now? Do I believe in him? Do I trust him? And if you do, listen, you can go to bed at night and not worry about your salvation or about your life. Because it is guaranteed by the promise of God. It is not contingent upon your performance or what you do today, tomorrow, or day before yesterday. It doesn't matter. If you're trusting Christ, you have assurance. Guess what? Nothing that comes after that promise can nullify the gospel. Nothing. No covenant that was made, no command that was given can ever nullify that promise that Gentiles will be justified because they believe in Christ. Because they believe in Christ. And just like that thief on the cross, when he came to glory, and they asked him, why should I let you in, right? He'd be like, I don't know. I believe in the guy in the middle, right? So he said, he didn't do anything. He didn't read anything. He didn't understand much. He didn't take any classes. He didn't read systematic theology. No. The guy in the middle cross told me I can come, as Alistair Begg says, right? That's why I'm here, because I believe his word. And if you believe his word, guess what? You can rest assured. Now, if you don't believe his word, believe it today. Believe and trust. And once you trust, I mean, let your assurance be not in your performance, not in your good deeds, not in what other people tell you, but in the promise of God. God promised to Abraham, and he's faithful to his promises. God promised to Christ And since I'm in Christ, I'm blessed. And so are you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this amazing plan, for this amazing redemption that is given to us freely because we are in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have purchased for us and you have given to us what we could not work for. Lord, we are blessed. I pray that you would help each person here rest in that. I pray for those who are struggling perhaps with their assurance that you would come alongside of them and you would give them grace to believe your word, that they can trust you, they can believe you, because you are always faithful. We praise you for the encouragement of scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.